Hello, everyone. Welcome to As It Stands with Hanson Sale, brought to you by The Daily Beacon. This is a special edition of As It Stands called As It Stands Conversations. Featuring a little bit more laid-back environment than typical interviews, As It Stands Conversations is about just that, having a good old conversation. All right. Hello, everybody. Welcome to As It Stands, brought to you by The Daily Beacon and your host, me, Hanson Sale. Um, joining me today is Matt K. Lewis. He is a senior columnist for The Daily Beast, CNN political commentator, host of the podcast, Matt Lewis in the News, highly recommended, and author of Too Dumb to Fail, How the GOP Betrayed the Reagan Revolution to Win Elections, and How It Can Reclaim Its Conservative Roots. So without further ado, welcome to the podcast, Matt, and thanks for being here. Hey, Hanson, good to be here. Yeah, well, so I want to start off talking a little bit about your most recent column uh, titled Trickle Down Trumpism Stains the Honorable and Rewards the Wicked. Uh, tell me, just tell me a little bit about the column and, and what you were going for in that. Yeah, so the idea is uh, trickle down Trumpism. So it's not just what Donald Trump says or does. Um, he has now impacted or infected, depending on how you look at it, yeah, yeah, the entire, yeah. certainly the Republican Party. But I think it's even trickled down to the military. And we see that with the way uh, you saw the captain of the USS Theodore Roosevelt was fired mm -hmm. um, for doing something that was pretty brave and honorable, actually, standing up for his, his sailors uh, who were, you know, basically on board this ship that had this outbreak of coronavirus. The captain did something honorable. Um, he couldn't get help for them. So he wrote this letter. And uh, then the acting uh, you know, Navy secretary reassigned him, went on the ship, attacked him in very Trumpy fashion. Uh -huh. He was either naive or stupid. And um, apparently he did that because he thought that that's what Trump would want. And he was actually preempting it, hoping that Trump himself wouldn't get involved. So like, that's an example of what I call trickle down Trumpism. Trump's behavior, his priorities, and his demeanor essentially are adopted by other people in the chain of command. Yeah, I mean, it's sort of astounding. Any of the military guys who have been in the administration thus far, it just sort of seems like they all went out all the time. Yeah. I mean, it's sort of beyond me. So, I mean, I thought it was a great piece. I highly recommend reading Thank it. Thank you. And, and there's this quote that I love from Hayek where he says, um, He's talking about in like a totalitarian regime, like in the Soviet Union, but he said uh, that the worst get on top. And mm -hmm. in a perverse environment, the worst people will make it to the top. They will succeed. And the best people, the people who have decency and honor are drummed out of the system. And that's the danger of trickle down Trumpism. It's not just about one guy at the top, it's about the entire culture and how that changes over time. After three years of this presidency, it's gotten all the way down into the military. But who knows after eight years what it would be like? Yeah, I mean, and it, it, I mean, it is a, insane how quickly it's happened. I mean, he has just thrown the entire institution of what we knew to be politics in three, three quick years. I mean, yeah. It's Big time. honestly amazing. Um, so I'm going to move on a little bit to, to just some the most recent news. Curious of your opinion on the on pull, his pulling the funding from WHO sort of uh, took me by surprise a little bit. Um, I mean, he's always sort of been anti WHO, which a lot of us are, but in the middle of a pandemic. Yeah, so that's kind of what makes this difficult is that there are elements of truth to it. And then there are questions about the way he goes about it and also his motives. So there's process questions and motives questions, even though. So, look, I'm not a huge fan of the WHO. I think it seems very clear that they um, that they were uh, – 
basically aiding China and, and, and China's attempt to cover this up or that at the very least they weren't, they weren't blowing the whistle. Um, thing, it seems sketchy to me. Uh, and so I'm actually in favor of, of investigating this and, mm-hmm. and, and calling them into question. Uh, should it happen now? Um, that's a legitimate question. Um, should Trump also seemed obsessed with how much money we pay them, which I think is really beside the point. Yeah. That's to me, that's, uh, that, that seems to be his priority that we're getting ripped off by how much money we pay them. And they're <laughs> and not pretty cool. much anything yeah. that has to do with international uh, money that we're, we're spending. And then, and then the other question is the motive, right? So I agree that a patriotic American should be concerned about China and should be concerned about the WHO. My concern is I, sometimes I, I think the motive is to distract from Trump's own failings uh-huh. rather than mm-hmm. to rather than to call into question what China did wrong and what the WHO got wrong. It's to distract from Trump and to change the subject from Trump. And that actually, I think, is a bad thing. I think we have enough time to focus on all of them. They all did things wrong and they all botched this. And in some cases, maybe it was nefarious. In some cases, maybe it was incompetence, but whatever the case may be, I think we have enough room to, uh, to look into all of them. Yeah, well, I mean, that's the, the part of it that I don't, it's so clear that Trump just cares about the current news cycle, because, you know, he's, he's praising China the next day. China's the worst thing in the world. I mean, it, it's so clear in all of these decisions that the news cycle is what bears all the weight for him. Especially, I mean, that that's what I saw out of the WHO. I mean, I, I think there's very, very good reason to be, to investigate the WHO. I, I mean, I personally feel like you could sort of start an investigation, exert some influence, but pooling funding in the middle of a pandemic just sort of Right. And I think what, there's a lot of there's a lot of problems with Trump. There's a lot of things that he has done. And we just talked about the, the impact he's had on the Navy and the military and chain of command and, and all those things. One of the things that he does is by, by virtue of him attacking the WHO and having ulterior motives for doing it and mm-hmm. doing it with question, questionable timing is it forces people like you and me who should actually be criticizing the WHO to almost Uh reflexively defend them. And so you end up having people who should actually be conservative allies taking the other side, you know, almost as a reflexively reflexive opposition to Trump. And so it's just, you know, he has these weird impacts on uh, the way that politics is played today. Yeah. I mean, uh... To me, the main point of this whole thing yesterday was just trying to take take the pressure off of their own failings. I mean, in recent days, I mean, they're just, I mean, it's just clear they didn't move on the supply chain side. It's clear that the federal government really hasn't played like much of a role um, in the entire thing. And so to me, I, I just... To make decision, I mean, to have a, a commander in chief who's making decisions based off of just the optics is sort of astounding. Yeah, here we are, and that's always been his thing. He he cares a lot about perception. He he cares about quote unquote winning and the perception of winning, um, and he's a big believer in the ability to um, invent a narrative, an alternative reality and to sell that. And so that's the game he's really playing. He's trying to win. He's trying to create an alternate reality, uh, basically redefine truth and an alternate revisionist history. He puts a lot more time and energy into that than he does into say like getting coronavirus testing, (laughs) you know, (laughs) up and running. Yeah, Yeah, I mean, uh, it's just shocking. I mean, and I don't know the, the way that he I've talked about this before uh, with a close friend and like the way that he just 
totally has no regard for the truth. It's nothing. I mean, he doesn't, he's not bound by it at all. Um, But the part of that, that that's sort of crazy to me is that a lot of people go, go with him on it. And and I just don't understand how you can, I mean, because some of these things are just blatantly false and how to, you know, still half the country is sort of like, I'm trying to understand it too. And I think some of it is um, a willing suspension of disbelief, like people who want to believe him. Um, Some of it is people who have just decided he's our guy. He may be a son of a bitch, but he's our son of a bitch. So I don't care if it's the truth. I think some of it is a lack of critical thinking and just a gullibility um, there is a, you know, not to sound elitist, but there is a huge, um, there's a correlation between people who have college degrees who don't like Trump and people who don't have college degrees who do like Trump. So it's not a matter of intelligence, but I think that one of the things you get from college is this sort of critical thinking and skepticism that you may not get if you don't go. So, um, but whatever the reason, there are certain people who look at Trump and we can see right through him and tell that it's, that we're being fed a, a bunch of uh, false bills. Um, and there are other people who don't have the BS detectors or if they do, they've turned them off. They've disabled them. Yeah, well, I mean, and I know a lot of people who, I mean, I think we underestimate to the, the portion of, of Trump voters who are just sort of tuned out to politics yeah. altogether, and he's on—he's the Republican nominee. They're lifelong Republican voters, and they think he's a Republican. Yeah, and, and they don't—they don't pay attention to all of the the noise, which you know is—is is, I guess a failure of the Republican Party to, you know. Your book says a lot about that, but um, yes. <laughs> you know, like it, it, I mean, it is like it, it, shocking. I mean, but but I again, I know so many people who just sort of tune out wh- what he says, and, yeah. and he's he's the Republican I was even guy. sort of like that, not with Trump, but just admittedly, like when I was growing up, it was very clear to me because my parents were conservative and they were great people, and Ronald Reagan was president, and he was awesome. So I just decided Republicans are good. And it was pretty clear to me that all the worst people in the country were liberal. <laughs> it was pretty undisputed. You know, basically like the, the, the drug addicts, the pornographers, the uh, whatever it is, they, all, they were all decided on their political party and their team, you know? And then yeah. I really lived in this almost Manichaean world where I truly believed that like the conservatives and Republicans were the good people who had all the answers if uh-huh. only they would listen to us and the other side were just pretty, all the bad people were basically in that side and then of course stupid people too who, who voted for uh-huh. them um but i remember like literally getting involved in journalism and i went to a uh this wasn't that long ago i went to a sarah Palin <laughs> rally uh, it wasn't a rally. It was like a speech she gave. I think it was a Susan B. Anthony list. It's the day that, that Palin unveiled the Mama Grizzly. <laughs> and, and then the next day I was listening to Rush Limbaugh, as I always did. And Rush was describing the event and something that Palin said or something that happened. And it hit me. He's misrepresenting this. And uh-huh. I know he's misrepresenting it because I was there. I was in the room. I heard the whole speech, I heard everything that went on, and and Rush is is getting this wrong, and I don't think it's an accident. And that's the first time it hit me that all the time that I've been listening to Rush Limbaugh since 1988, uh-huh. and he has been, and I've been outsourcing my knowledge and opinions to Rush because I figured he's he's my guy i like him i trust him and he's smarter than me and he knows these he knows more about politics than i do therefore if he says it it must be true and the only thing that lifted the scales from my eyes was that literally i had been at that rally and i know for a fact he's getting it wrong uh-huh and so like i understand those people who are just going along with their team and maybe don't even know any better 
Yeah, I get well, yeah, I mean, I don't, and I think the, the way that, I mean, this has been a theme on the past episodes, but I mean, just the way that we consume news and, and a lot of what gets talked about, it's, it's really hard to break that sort of like opinion or that just follow your tribe kind of deal the way that we present news all the time. I mean, I, I was in a similar, I mean, I grew up in a, like, say quasi-conservative, because I think it was just like, we're supposed to vote Republican just because that's what everybody else in our family does. And then I, I mean, because I remember waking up devastated, I think, in, <laughs> when Obama was reelected. I just thought A it was the end. A lot of people were surprised. <laughs> I, I thought it was the end of the world. Um, that's that how I pretty... felt in 1992 when Bill Clinton won the presidency, because it had actually been, it had been 12 years since a Democrat was president. We had two terms of Reagan and we had four uh-huh. years of Bush. And I'd been hearing about how Bill Clinton was this pot smoking, draft dodging, womanizer. <laughs> Some of those things actually were, of course, true. Yeah. But, um, turned out to not be that bad of a president in some ways, you know? <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, that's what was comical to me was by the end of, of the Obama era and sort of the, the emergence of Trump, like it started to like love Barack Obama. I mean, I'm critical of a lot of things that went on, but it's just like, the and you know, now I, I mean, I, I don't, I'm sort of happy about, personally about the not for the country but for myself about the trump thing just because it sort of made party politics just really stupid in my mind yeah mm-hmm. it's just so neither i mean especially where we are right now it's just like nobody really speaks any sort of level-headed i mean it's just not well, I think that's one of the good things about podcasting, actually, is that like this is where people do kind of have nuance and thoughtful discussions. And there's a lot of podcasting now. It's 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 having, and the moment might have even passed, but um, but the proliferation of podcasts, I think, has been one of the few very positive developments that technology has given our media environment. Yeah, I mean. It- sort of limits the power that some of these like cable news shows have you know because you know they've got their hour and their commercial breaks and a lot of people doing podcasts and 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 the like can do whatever they want i mean there's a little bit of power to that Um, oh i mean think about like the big podcasts like joe rogan i mean um you could probably go on joe rogan in fact, I think um, Andrew Yang, uh, really, yeah. that was probably his biggest, uh, the, the thing that really caused him to take off was was Joe doing Joe Rogan's podcast and, and others. Um, he, he sort of used podcasting. And probably there's more viewers on Joe Rogan's podcast than there are on a lot of primetime cable news shows. <laughs> yeah, it's true. I mean, so I, I'm, a, I'm a fan of, of, of Joe Rogan. But, I, li- I listen to him, but you know, I don't take, like, I know, you know, I used to outsource things to Rush Limbaugh and I don't do that anymore. Like I'll listen to Joe Rogan and I'll say like, I think he's right about that. I think he's crazy about this. I don't think he knows enough to be saying that, but it's entertaining. And I think I'm an uh, informed consumer of information now. And so I, yeah. I'm able to listen mm-hmm. to Joe Rogan and listen, I listen to a ton of podcasts, um, but I would be a little concerned about like a young person who thinks Joe Rogan knows everything and is their guru who just assumes that like everything he says, you know, cause like he'll have Alex Jones on for six hours, you know, fairly yeah, yeah. well, I mean, I, I think that's like one of the great things about Joe Rogan is that he has so many different people on his show and they yeah. represent this really huge range of perspectives. But at the same time, like, there's this weird sort of like cult following around Joe Rogan. Um, And it just sort of mimics the Rush Limbaugh thing. I mean, I I like Joe Rogan a lot, but I mean, half the time, I mean, they'll just be stuff he says that I'm like, yeah, I I don't, I don't think you know what you're talking about. I used to, I used to posture myself like because I was a conservative, 
sort of a libertarian conservative in some ways, but a conservative. And I was going to college, like liberal, every college is pretty much liberal and like being a young person as I used to be. Being a conservative was kind of a rebellious countercultural thing. And I, I kind of, um, I took pride in that, that I was like uh-huh. countercultural. But, but now that I think back, I was really buying into tribalism in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Like I wasn't being an individual. I wanted to be part of a tribe, this conservative tribe. And I remember like uh, when Rush Limbaugh first started, he had this thing called Dan's Bake Sale. It was this, this guy named Dan who couldn't afford to get the Limbaugh letter. And he held a bake sale to raise money for Cause I think there was some stupid thing about some little girl who had held a bake sale to try to help pay down the national debt. And so Rush was making fun of that. And this guy named Dan started a bake sale. Well, Rush decided we'll have bake sales all across America. And he actually spoke, I think Rush uh, spoke at one of them, probably at Dan's bake sale. And I remember just like thinking how awesome that was. And, and I wish I could uh, go to one of them. And, and then Rush, um, Rush, there was this thing where people were running like AIDS ribbons and all these different kinds of ribbons back in the day. And Rush took like a dollar bill and taught you how to make a ribbon. And he called it the deficit spending awareness ribbon. <laughs> back when we cared about deficits, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it doesn't matter anymore. And I wore, I remember um, I worked at a gas station in Frederick, Maryland for five years, an Amoco station. And I remember wearing as, a, as an employee there, wearing my deficit spending awareness ribbon. <laughs> proudly and now i would go back and just kick my my own ass for for that i I mean i was like buying into tribalism i wasn't being an individual yeah i mean well it sort of goes back to just the democratic party and the republican party too i mean we we live in this world right now where there's this like I don't know where it came from, honestly, but the purity thing of like, I have to agree with this person on every single thing they believe or else like disavow them, cancel them, like get them out of here. And I don't know where, I mean, I don't know where that came from. I mean, it's clearly part of the democratic party now. Uh, I think it's, I think it's a fairly new phenomenon. I think it came, I actually, I think it came from the Republican side um, more because remember the Democrats had this really weird uh, coalition where you would have like drag queens in San Francisco and the same party as like a union welder from <laughs> Lansing, Michigan or something. Yeah. You know? <laughs> so they, so they didn't, they didn't have to have conformity. Right. But it was the Republican party who um, and the conservative movement uh, who decided like we need to start, you know, we have too many rhinos, too many squishes, these like New England liberal moderates. So we need to start enforcing um, orthodoxy. And I was actually kind of a part of that, to be honest with you, Um, because I really those I mean, some of those moderate Republicans really were just annoy these just establishment uh, types. It's like yeah. the first thing I ever did in uh, in politics was I I worked um, in Maryland. I helped uh, a guy named Alex Mooney, who's now a congressman from West Virginia, but at the time he was running for state senate in Maryland, and I helped uh, run his campaign and uh, and we beat a uh, 16-year incumbent in the Maryland State Senate, a guy named Jack Durr, who was the uh, Senate Minority Whip. Ooh. And we beat him. And this was part of that effort of, of kind of young conservatives taking on the moderate establishment. Uh-huh. Um, and so I was all about that back then. Yeah, And, I mean, and, and I still think uh, that a lot of these, these guys were just, you know, they needed, they, they were... Uh, they needed to be replaced. But I also think that there were some bad things that we ushered in at the same time that, that have kind of metastasized since then. Yeah, I mean, it, it's clear that that's sort of the dynamic in the 
the Democratic Party right now of, of trying to usurp the establishment. But what do you think about, I mean, what is the state of the GOP with, with regard to that? I mean, I, I don't, it's so hard to, I mean, I don't know what people mean when they say the GOP right now, because it's very unclear. Yeah. I, no, I think that it's it's a, I mean, the the Republican Party was a very weakened, vulnerable party, and I think Donald Trump I saw that quicker than a lot of people. I think he exploited that, and I think he conducted this hostile takeover and basically took over the Republican Party. So, it's now you know clearly his party. Um, mm-hmm. I don't think there are really any core beliefs or principles. I mean, you name the issue and Donald Trump has basically ruined it. You know what I mean? Yeah, well, I mean, it's amazing to see how far it's come. I listened to, I I saw that you just had him on your show and I was about halfway through listening to it. But um, there was some episode with David from, from, I don't know where I, I heard it, but him just talking about the Bush administration early on had like considered a carbon tax. And it's crazy that, I mean, because the early Bush administration said climate change was <laughs> real and, and do we need to, do we need to address it? Yeah, we do. And, and to see just, I mean, there is no clear yeah. ideological like underpinning to it. No, there isn't. I mean, you get on the list of things we used to believe in, and Trump has essentially compromised us, uh, them, um, and, and contradicted. So there, it's really hard to find. Um, I mean, right now we're about Trump. We're about winning. Um, and I think you could talk about tribalism. I mean, the Republican Party is basically the party of old, non-college educated, white, rural men. That's not really a belief or a principle, but it, it's, it's a profile but so we're for us, we're for, <laughs> we're for making sure we get ours. But, but in terms of actually an agenda, uh, it doesn't really exist. And I do think, though, that there's a chance that post-Trump, you could end up with a party that, um, that is somewhat coherent, that mm-hmm. it's going to be more populist than it used to be, um, more nationalist than it used to be. But if, if you ended up with someone like Mike Pence, let's say, I think it might be possible to cobble together a coalition that includes people like me who don't like Trump but do like Pence um, or at least like him okay, like him enough to vote for him. I don't have any Mike Pence posters up on my bedroom <laughs> wall, but you know what I'm saying. Um, and also Trump people you know, people in Pennsylvania and Michigan who voted, who love Donald Trump, but they might stick with Pence. Um, and so I think it's possible, but it's also possible the Republican Party just folds at some point too, right? I, that, that, that wouldn't surprise me. Yeah, I mean, but do you think, I mean, I feel like as a country and as a whole and as a, an electorate, we have on, on a lot of social issues, we've really started to move to the left. I mean, I think it was a, a small shift and I, I don't, that's the part where I don't see, I mean, is there still that completely stringent, maybe on a couple of issues, there's some stringent sort of social conservatism, but I, I don't, I'm, I'm skeptical that that still exists as a whole. I mean, to me, I think what you do is is you it needs to be defined. I, I think the life issue, with exceptions, is worth fighting for based on principle. And politically, I think it's a uh, utterly defensible political position to be pro-life with exceptions. So that's an issue where I don't think you should abandon it. And I think that um, the life issue is is worth the fighting for. I think that you could talk about also religious liberty as an issue, right? So not discriminating against anybody, but also being against, like I'm against government coercion. Like I don't think that you should Mm -hmm. be able to force a preacher who who doesn't believe in gay marriage to conduct a marriage ceremony. Like I think that's actually the government coercion and so I think that's something that is, you know, morally and politically uh, 
defensible. I mean, I think those are the places where social conservatives can take a stand and win. But I think on a lot of issues, including just gay, you know, gay marriage in general, it seems like that ship has sailed. Yeah, I mean, uh, that's a curious point you make because I, I mean, I don't know how, well, I don't know why a gay person would really be interested in forcing someone who doesn't want to marry them. I don't think most of them are. Them. Yeah, I don't think so either. But I think the yeah. only people who are interested in that are people who are, who are activists or agitators who have an agenda. In the old days, like same thing with the baking the cake thing. You know, if there was only one bakery in town and they were refusing to bake you a cake, then that would be a little bit different, right? But if there are a hundred bakeries in town and one of them has some deep, you know, theological, deep, deeply held conviction that it would violate their conscience to bake a cake for a wedding ceremony, like why not leave them alone? Why should we use the force of government to compel them to violate their conscience? I think that's wrong. Um, and I think that we can defend that and not be on the wrong side of history. So to me, that's where the social conservatives may be out of focus a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I think it's an interesting point. I, I, I kind of think about just when these things are codified in law. I mean, this is an old example, but I mean, every we once used, used religious battle. I mean, we religion backed slavery at one point and and now we have a civil rights act and if some preacher didn't want to marry someone because they were african-american you know we would go crazy and so i mean how do you align that with i mean because i I get it that i I don't think that i mean i I don't understand why anyone would want to be married by someone who (laughs) doesn't want to marry them but i i mean once you put it into law we have these other protections Yeah. I just did a podcast recently. um, I'm trying to think of the name of the book that, that basically makes this point about how, you know, slavery is the original sin of America Mm -hmm. and correcting that required us to really throw out a lot of the things that we believed in. Right. So like, for example, um, you know, uh, the notion, so, so the notion that you should force somebody, um, free association would be an example, right? Uh-huh. We were trying to correct an evil that was actually state sponsored. I mean, Jim Crow was state, state sponsored mm-hmm. discrimination. And in order to, I think, rightly correct that evil, there was a tension between constitutional rights like free expression and we we cited on because this is so bad because this is such an e- such an evil it's the original sin in order to fix it we have to use kind of overwhelming force and throw out other mm-hmm. good things that we were founded on you know um and i think it was the right thing to do now the question is was slavery and jim crow a unique problem and a unique evil that we had to make exceptions in order to redress Mm -hmm. or is it a precedent for how we should treat all sorts of other groups of people um and i would argue the former so i don't think it's a really a fair analogy um but other people have tried to have tried to use a Jim Crow um, talking about like lunch counters and, and Rosa uh-huh. Parks on the bus and extrapolate that um, that a, a cake baker is tantamount to, you know, a preacher who wouldn't marry an interracial couple. I, I, I think that that's an unfair leap and analogy, but um, but clearly it's been. Um, I think pretty effectively used uh-huh. to win culture war. Yeah, well, I mean, I think that the reason I think about that is when it extends to 
employment and, and stuff like that, you know, if we are to give, I mean, if we pass the Equality Act and made it illegal to fire someone because of sexual orientation, I mean, that that's going to get put into that space. And I think that's a more, I mean, the employment side is a much more clear issue, at least in my opinion, rather than in how that I mean, translates no, to these small things. Part of the, you know, if if we decide that nobody can have, you know, standards that keep other people out, you can't have an all girls school anymore. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. You can't. Um, if I'm a Methodist and a Lutheran wants to like apply to be the minister at my kids camp, I can't say, well, actually we're Methodists and like, you're not part of our denomination because that's some sort of discrimination, you know? Uh -huh. um, so it, it gets very messy. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. It gets very messy and, and, uh, and, and, you know, and, 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 and the worst thing in the world is to be like accused of being like a racist or a misogynist or a homophobe uh -huh. or, or whatever. And I think for a long time, conservatives have been called those things. In some cases, they deserved it. Yeah. In some cases, mm -hmm. I think they didn't. And at some point, they just said, like, if you're going to call us this anyway, um, then we're not going to play your game anymore. So we're going to get our own bully named Donald Trump. And mm -hmm. we're not going to watch your channel or read your website anymore. We're going to start our own because now we can, because now we have the internet, right? And so, like, I'm not saying that, like, that's the whole story. Uh -huh. um, but that's part of the story for how we got to where we are today, in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, it, I mean, it kind of goes back to the purity thing in, in general. It's just nobody, I mean, there's so little nuance and any political discourse at this point. Um, so, to, I mean, I, you know, I don't talk a lot about cancel culture and I don't, you know, I'm, I'm against the politics of victimhood. I thought it was wrong. I mean, you read my book, Too Dumb to Fail. I mean, I've been out there preaching against conservatives playing identity politics or playing victimhood. And like, so I'm not, I mean, there are people, other people like Ben Shapiro who spent a lot of time talking about what I'm talking about right now. This is not my uh, shtick, but I do think like, like one reason, one of many reasons for the rise of Trump is that you had conservatives who felt like they were under attack unfairly. They couldn't win the game anymore. So they had to change, change the game. Yeah. Well, political correctness as an entity just went too far yeah. i mean to the point where you just i mean <laughs> i think it's funny when you read back through history and see how a lot of really incredible ideas were really fringe um and i sort of just i'm a i mean i lean really hard towards free speech in pretty much most instances but i mean because my opinion is truly fringe ideas stay fringe and good fringe ideas that we need to hear to at some point become the mainstream. I just, but I mean, they're the, a huge part of the progressive sort of movement right now is, is very much geared towards cancel culture, towards we don't want you to be able to say that. And I mean, I, I, I just get chucked at the, people who show up to people's events to protest and scream while they're trying to talk. I mean, it, it, I mean, talk, I mean, it's authoritarian. Yeah, no, I'm with you on that. Um, so, Hey buddy, my kid. Um, no, I'm, I'm with you on that. And, and uh, interestingly though, I mean, I feel like the democratic party, really at the national level, like moved away from that. Um, there were candidates who were really pushing this message, right? Like 
like Gillibrand and uh, uh-huh. Castro and just all, there were a bunch of like really progressive candidates who were playing identity politics and like really going to the left. And you end up having Joe Biden, <laughs> Joe Biden emerge as the nominee. And he did it because of all these uh, sane, moderate, centrist voters called African-Americans who turned out to be the savior that Republicans didn't have. Like Republicans Which is, didn't have any yeah, well, sane, moderate voters. I mean, it's a... Well, Not enough. I, we had, so Republicans had the Mormons in Utah and they had kind of the Wisconsin, whatever, um, you know, voters uh, who were kind of tight knit. They had a lot of social capital and they they were not fans of Trump, but but there weren't enough to stop him. They stopped him in yeah. Wisconsin. They stopped him in Utah, but they stopped him with different candidates too. Like some people like Rubio, some people like Cruz, uh-huh. but the Democrats had South Carolina, which really was that firewall. Yeah. Well, I mean, I got to talking about South Carolina. I mean, I, after Biden's win in South Carolina, which I all think, I mean, he won with greater margins than I think any of us had envisioned. I think <laughs> that's always been the case. The the black vote, uh, the polling for black voters is always wrong, um, inevitably. But it, it was just like comical to me after South Carolina when the Bernie camp continued to call, I mean, continue to make this establishment argument. And I'm like, I don't know that the African-American vote in South Carolina can be called the Democratic establishment. (laughs) I mean, like, it just was comical to me because they kept going after it like that. And I was just like, what? Well, it's just so interesting, too, because... um, it was very. It was a clear contrast between how the Republican Party was very vulnerable and susceptible to being taken over, while the Democratic Party actually wasn't. There actually are sane adults in the Democratic Party, which to me defied my expectations. If you had asked me 10 years ago, um, I would have thought the Republican Party had a lot more serious, thoughtful adults in it. Um, and the other thing I would have thought is I, w- I used to assume, and I think it wasn't just me, I think it was actually borne out in, in fact that you would think that African-Americans would be among the most liberal uh, mm-hmm. left-leaning among the Democratic coalition. But it turns out it's not that the, the way things are today, that they were much more centrist, moderate, um, based on the way the world has, has moved. So uh, it was just fascinating to see how how that turned out. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've seen some uh, some interesting um, polling and, and data on um, that white progressives take like way harder stances on a lot of the social issues um, than any other demographic. And it's, I mean, I don't, I don't know how to explain that. It's, it's a, I mean. I, yeah, it's, it's, it's sort of like rich young white progressives too on twitter right it's not, yeah. it's not i mean i got into I mean, this is totally like anecdotal and you know, but just i remember like uh it might have been on super two it was on super tuesday i got into an uber and as an african-american woman so coronavirus was starting to kind of be a yeah. it wasn't the top story yet but it was on the verge of it and she was talking to me about about Jesus and, and praying against, I mean, just, you know, as I'm a Christian. And so like, she was uh-huh. really speaking my language and just, you know, just a totally decent, awesome Christian lady. Uh, we're having this great time. And then, you know, the conversation comes to Trump and of course she can't stand Trump and she's supporting <laughs> Joe Biden. And I was like, "Am I am I in the right part? Maybe I'm. Maybe I should be with her. Like, I think she and I have a lot more in common than I have with Donald Trump. You know? Well, I mean, it, it shifted the. I mean, it shifted the the political spectrum. I mean, I I I've been curious to. Just I, I want to know what that that 
where the the dense parts of the political spectrum are right now because there's clearly a left left like far left side and there's clearly the far right trump side but but how big is is the center left and center right i i don't know i mean i mean a huge part of biden to me i think was on that this really weird electability issue i mean i think a lot of people voted for him or maybe voted against bernie is a better way to put it at least yeah i think i think that there was the anti-bernie thing um and the anti-bernie thing i think was ideological and pragmatic you know politically Uh um i think that was part of it um I also think that there was, among the African-American community, I think there was a ton of loyalty to Joe Biden for his service mm-hmm. in the Barack Obama administration. Like, I really think that, that there was loyalty in that community to Biden for being loyal to Obama. Yeah, I mean, and, and uh, yeah, I, I read something, I can't, there's a really great piece, maybe in the Atlantic, but just talking about the dynamics of Joe Biden being a white man and like, very proudly taking like the number two, two seat. And I, I mean, I, I don't, <laughs> I mean, I, that shouldn't be remarkable, but apparently it is. Yeah. Um, well, I think, you know, at your age, it, it may not even seem to be, but like, if you're a 65 year old African American, yeah, that was, I mean, and you've been called boy or something by a younger person than you, you've been disrespected based on the, the color of your skin. So when you were 40 years old, or 30 years old, you were disrespected driving through the South or something. And now there's this white man who's been in the Senate for a long time, and he's reporting to, you know, Barack Hussein Obama, and it respects him and is deferring to him as the president, and isn't isn't leaking information, isn't trying to you know, outdo him or succeed him or replace him. I understand how, you know, of a certain age and a certain, you know, historical context. Clearly, I mean, clearly it has something to do with age because, I mean, the polling amongst young African-Americans is (laughs) pretty staunchly anti-Joe Biden. Um, So, I mean... I think that's probably one of the bigger, bigger parts of this whole thing has, has really just been the age divide. I mean, we've seen again that over and over and over, but this year again, that young people continue not to vote. Um, but it's, I mean, that. Which is a pattern that, I'm actually in favor of by and large. <laughs> I, I am as, right as, now. As borne, out by, as borne out by Joe Biden's victory over, you know, over Bernie Sanders. Yeah, well, I mean, and uh, I've thought a lot about it when you look at the who, well, especially those first couple of days once the world started blowing up about coronavirus and you see all these young people on spring break, like continuing to go on spring break. And I like sent out a tweet and I was like, this is exactly why I don't want young people deciding who, I mean, for for a generation who cannot stop talking about like re-climate change how they're being failed by older generations like to go out on spring break and have no regard for coronavirus was like exactly why i don't want you you're as a young man your frontal cortex isn't fully developed until you're 25 it makes perfect sense to me i don't think you should be voting at the age of 18 unless you're serving in the military, then, then we'll give you a waiver. I mean, you know, I was, I was insane until I was 25. And I think most, <laughs> I should have been, I should have been like incarcerated. I shouldn't have been even on the streets, let alone <laughs> voting and drinking. We might be on the opposite. Drinking and we, voting. <laughs> Simultaneously <we might. laughs> in some cases. 
we might be on the opposite end of the spectrum because <laughs> I, I was I was born like already in my mid fifties. Like I've already had like five life crises, and I'm like there are people like that. There it's are really not. Like I went to a school. I went to school with a guy who like. Do you know who Colonel Potter is from Mash? No idea. So in the TV show Mash, there's this really old, really old guy named Colonel Potter, and like this friend of mine since seventh grade has reminded me of Colonel Potter. Like he's had the soul of like, <laughs> like a constipated eighty year old like, <laughs> military man, and he's still the same. So. Yeah, I mean, I started running a business out of my room when I was like eight. So yeah. I mean, well, I, that was not me. So, I mean, <laughs> but I think that's exceptional. I think most, most young men are, you know, I mean, again, the, like scientifically, I just don't think the, the frontal cortex is fully developed. Um, and so you just, you know, you think you're invincible. Uh -huh. um, you think, you know, everything. Yeah. I, I mean, mean basically you're like Trump. It's like, we're all like Trump, you know? <laughs> Just believe the last person who talked to you. Yes. Um, <laughs> well, so that, I mean that, so on the young, topic of young people, cause this is something that I, I've been super interested in is, is what Bernie's long-term impact on young people will be because I mean, one thing, everything's a conspiracy against you. And, but also, I mean, Bernie's in platform in a way was, like, don't trust the government, but elect me so I can make the government way bigger and you have to yeah. trust everything. And, and it's, I mean, it doesn't make sense. And so there was a really interesting tweet. So Alex Burns of the New York Times, I'll read it, but he said, the never Biden faction of the Sanders camp is now in an awkward position can you maintain that Bernie Sanders is a figure of unique vision and moral bravery? So America's most valuable left-wing leader in a generation and also believe that he's wrong to now endorse Joe Biden, which I think it's very fair point because there's a ton of never Joe Biden. Yeah. Um, well, so first to go back to what you were saying, I mean, I think the debacle in Iowa was like the best example of that recently where, you know, Democrats were asking to run our healthcare system, but they couldn't run a caucus, a Democratic caucus, yeah. you know. Um, but to the point about Bernie, I just think this is like a weird, um, almost contradiction within Bernie Sanders. Like, ideologically, he is a radical revolutionary. And not a Democrat. But, but yeah, but but then... But he plays, but within the logistical sort of way he actually plays the game, he plays like a, like a small D Democrat. He respects the rule of law. He mm -hmm. sort of respects the establishment and bows to tradition and deference. And so um, he's much more like responsible and, um, and than than Trump, you know, but it creates there's a contrast between his his philosophy, which is kind of radical, and his actual, um, you know, process of of playing the game of politics, which is I think much more conventional. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I've made, I mean, and maybe it is conventional, but I mean, looking at his history of getting things done, I mean, he hasn't done much. Um, and I've sort of maintained this position throughout the primaries that, it, and I, I'm pro I probably lean, I mean, I'm, I'm a moderate and I probably lean a little bit left on certain issues, especially now that we have Trump in office, but I've maintained throughout this entire thing that if you are truly a progressive and you truly believe in that vision, you would have voted for Elizabeth Warren because she knows how to work the system and actually mm -hmm. get those things done but bernie's people are just so i mean it's so conspiracy all the time and i i mean i wonder the long-term impact of all of these young people who just have this really like conflicting position of like never trust government but like government should do and be responsible for everything yeah
I mean, I think a lot of it, honestly, is going to be uh, people like AOC. I mean, Bernie's going to pass the torch to AOC, presumably, mm-hmm. and the squad. And then the question is, how do they function? Can, you know, and I think, I mean, as someone who is afraid of socialism, I think it's a little bit scary, the notion that they may be more appealing and competent uh, than than Bernie and that they can sort of take the movement he has started and take it to the next level. Yeah, so so I want to, this really good question that I have been presented with, or I've heard a lot of people talk about, I, I'm clearly, I mean, I think it's clear choice when it comes to Trump, Biden. I mean, Biden's really <laughs> not, I mean, pretty, pretty far to the, the right for the Democratic Party. But so there's, a, I know a good chunk of people who are like, I won't ever vote for Trump. I mean, don't have to explain that. But I can't vote for Biden because he's in cognitive decline. I mean, he, how can we just like vote for someone who we think we're just going to care about their cabinet? What do you, like, what do you say to that person? Cause I think it's insane. I think the choice is so clear as far as just like actually getting things done and like having experts in the room who are people listen to, but there is this sort of thing out there of people who are like, I don't want to vote for either of them. And I, well, I mean, so so I'm in a weird position because, like, I'm not going to vote for either of them either. <laughs> I mean, Are, you know, I'm not going to vote for Trump for character reasons, and I and I wouldn't vote for Ber- uh, for Biden just based on philosophical reasons. I mean, you know, um, but the cognitive thing is not something I would be concerned about. I mean, look, is Biden is Biden as you know coherent? Uh, and, and quick as he used to be, no. Um, but I haven't seen anything that concerns me that he's like suffering from dementia or doesn't know who, you know. I, I don't think that there's any um, any need to, I don't think that should be a deal breaker for anybody. Well, I mean, and that's what I've been trying, I mean, that's the, that's the, I mean, partially the the Bernie people who just, have always been never Joe, but I mean, one person who's sort of like channeled that position has been Rogan. Like Rogan's super yeah. like, he's totally like cognitive decline. Like I can't vote for this man. Which I just is an interesting sort of, I mean, it, it, I think it plays into this whole thing that Trump has created is that like conspiracy theories can totally just be well, true. remember the whole thing with hillary clinton you know in the run-up to hillary clinton you know she was fainted which was not good for her because it confirmed a lot of this stuff um and now i think they're going to try to play the same thing with biden the irony is that trump if anybody is you know sun what is it called sundowning or whatever i mean if anybody is lost some cognitive ability. I mean, compared to, you know, Trump has always been a weird, uh, bad person, but compare his communication ability 20 years ago to today. And it, he's definitely taken a couple of steps backward. Yeah. So, I know for yeah. sure. But uh, so uh, to, to go back onto that, I, so I think it's interesting because a lot of people sort of bash the two party system and partially for good reason um it's interesting to me though when you move away from a two-party system there's very plausible scenarios where the president is someone who gets 30 percent of the vote um and so i I mean i'm just curious what that does to democracy i mean sort of feels like it would be even more partisan when we have somebody in office who yeah no it's it, it's a good question i think bill clinton so when that's ross how perot bill clinton, ran, yeah yeah it's when ross, <laughs> perot, ross perot got 19% of the vote so bill clinton became president with like 40 couple percent of the vote i want to say so that's the closest you get it's hard to have a mandate to do big things 
like he wanted to do when only 43 or I don't know how many, but, you know, he certainly didn't have a majority of Americans who voted for him. It's hard to claim a mandate. So I used to be really, really bullish on a two-party system because the theory was that because you needed to essentially win 50% plus one, mm-hmm. it would force people to become moderate, you know, because yeah. you're fighting over, you're trying to win those swing voters and the independents. And so at 60 yard line, 64, you know, between the, the I'm sorry, between the 40 yard lines, right. You're, mm-hmm. so you're fighting over the middle turf. Um, and, that's basically what I thought a two-party system would do, that it would keep out fringe characters like, let's say, in Germany, where you have, might have a bunch of political mm-hmm. parties and Adolf Hitler comes along. Um, and I always thought that was true until Donald Trump got elected. <laughs> because yeah. it didn't work. I mean, so the idea of the two-party system is it will keep out fringe elements, uh, and it didn't work with Trump. And so now I've, it's, it's caused me to kind of question you know, my assumptions. Well, that was sort of the point of the electoral college too. I mean, the, the founding kind of philosophy was that like, we can keep a bigot from like, yeah, but I mean, part of the person, the problem there though, is one of the, the things, one the of the things the electoral people, college yeah. does, one of the things the electoral college still does is make sure that small states are yeah. able to compete, right? But the thing it doesn't do anymore is vetting. It used to be for vetting, right? So like states would send prestigious elites to represent them as electors and they could over, they could over, uh, over, um, now I'm, now I'm sounding like Joe Biden. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it happens, you know, you get up, you get up in years. They weren't bound to the popular vote in their state. So if I'm an elite, I could say, okay, the people from my state voted for Trump, but I don't think he's competent. I don't think he's fit. Therefore, I am going to overrule them and vote for Hillary or somebody else. We've basically gotten rid of that as a country. So we, uh-huh. we've taken away the most important function that the Electoral College was originally designed by the founders to, to serve. Which, I mean, and that's sort of the basis of, of populism in a way is that it, it is that elite that, I mean, Trump said he wanted to get rid of. Um, yeah. I mean, same with Bernie, but I mean, it clearly hasn't been, I mean, it clearly hasn't been, <laughs> for Trump, it's, it's just been a new swamp. And I mean, I, I really would be, <laughs> I would love to see, a, I mean, I don't want it to it won't become reality, but I'd love to see what a Bernie Sanders cabinet would look like, um, just given given full reign. Um, but all right, well, so we'll end it on this question. Who I it's my mind totally dependent on how this coronavirus stuff plays out. But but who's got the edge for for does, does Trump win re-election? Uh, so I agree with you that it's all about uh, coronavirus. Uh, if I'm betting today, I'm betting on Joe Biden. I'm betting on Joe Biden. Um, and, 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 and that's mainly because of the economy. This mm-hmm. has, so it was already going to be kind of a close race, even though Donald Trump had a great economy. Mm-hmm. And it was still close, right? And so now I think, that's gone. And so I think you have to give the edge to Joe Biden. Uh, I think that, um, remember, Donald Trump lost the popular vote last time. He won the Electoral College by virtue of winning Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Michigan by a grand total of 77,000 votes. Um, So it was really close already. Now we're facing this on top of all the crazy tweets, all the crazy things Trump's done. I mean, but you see his approval rating going up. I mean, and it, it's part of being in a crisis that is, we've all, I mean, it's historically been true that in a time of crisis, the approval rating shoot up. So, I, I mean, it's interesting. I, I think so. I mean, I would say, I think 
Biden has the edge too. But at the same time, if it proves to be a, a two-quarter, three-quarter recession and the economy's sort of looking up on election day and this coronavirus stuff is, is under control, I don't see how Trump loses in that environment in many ways. So, I mean, the one thing I would certainly concede is that it's it's hard to say anybody knows what's going to happen, especially yeah. with Trump. I mean, the rules don't seem to apply. Historical precedents don't seem to apply. So I don't want to, you know, I don't want to be stupid enough to say there's no way Trump can, you know, that we've <laughs> people have made that mistake in the past. Never count him out. Um, if I'm betting today, I'm betting on Joe Biden. Right, well, we'll end it with that. Matt K. Lewis, everybody. Um, check out his podcast, Matt Lewis in the News. It's great. And his book, Too Dumb to Fail. Uh, thanks for being here. Appreciate hey, it. Thanks for having me. Good conversation. Hey, you. Thank you for tuning in to As It Stands. As It Stands is brought to you by The Daily Beacon, the editorial independent student newspaper at the University of Tennessee, Knoxville, and your host, me, Hanson Sale. A special thanks to Evan Newell, Austin Orr, the Howard H. Baker Center for Public Policy, and the Coronavirus-19 Outbreak Response Experts Team at the University of Tennessee, Knoxville. For up-to-date information about COVID-19 and its impact on Tennessee, visit core19.utk.edu. I hope you enjoy the show. Remember to read widely, practice social distancing, and join me for the next episode of As It Stands. I hope you have a great week, and see you then.